it starts on the day I quit drinking, and I, it was it was a it was a bad day. I woke up um, the day after my birthday party, so I had a really bad hangover, obviously. And um, I went down to my kitchen, and my kids were all making loads of racket, and I had a terrible headache. And I remember thinking you know, that the only thing that would make the headache go away is is hair of the dog, sort of another drink. But it was too early to pour a drink because, you know, I thought, you know, I had this hard and fast rule at the time. I had many hard and fast rules, but the main one was you never, ever drink before midday. You know, no, whether you're on holiday, whether it's the weekend, whatever, never before midday. And it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I just couldn't work out how I was going to get from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock um, with this terrible headache and all this racket and feeling really, you know, just generally awful. And I opened the cupboard and there was a tiny, tiny bit of red wine left in a bottle, which I saw as a sign because I rarely ever left anything in the bottom of a bottle. And I thought, OK, well, I'll just drink that inch of red wine and that might just take the edge off. And I reached into a cupboard, another cupboard and pulled out a mug because I thought, well, then the kids won't know that I'm drinking red wine rather than, than something acceptable like coffee. So uh, I poured the red wine into this mug and drank it. And I did feel a bit better, sort of almost immediately. And then I looked at the mug and it said on it, the world's best mum. You know, I felt so ashamed of myself that I haven't had a drink since then. That was, the, yeah, that was the very last drink I had. And that was six years ago now. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Now here at Tribe Sober we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. You need other people on the same path to help and encourage you. So here at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups. I have 43 months of Friday wins, so I'm going to make this Friday my lifetime win. Um, I have been sober for three and a half years after hearing World Without Wine, Tribe Sober on the radio and thinking that I could do a quick 30 day sober challenge just to clean up my system and get everybody off my back. Anyway, fast forward three and a half years later, I have not touched a drop. 
and that is because of the support of this wonderful tribe um, and now I can also help support people starting out on this really amazing journey. Anyway, have a fabulous weekend from Jane in Norway. So if you want to join our community and get a bit of support, just go to tribesober.com and click on join our tribe. So let's get to my guest. Today I'm thrilled to be interviewing Claire Pooley, who's the author of the inspirational Sober Diaries, a book that has changed many, many lives. The Sober Diaries takes us through Claire's very first year of sobriety and includes an account of her successful battle to overcome breast cancer. It's an essential read for anybody on this journey. Claire is a perfect example of how ditching the drink can make our dreams come true. It was always her dream to be an author, and that dream has come true. Not only was giving up alcohol a trigger for her to write her hugely successful blog, but she's now written two best-selling books with a third in the pipeline. So let's get to our conversation. Okay, Claire, well, it's, it's just so wonderful to see you again after a couple of years since I saw you in the flesh, isn't it? So uh, let's... And what a time it's been. <laughs> oh, wow, I know. But but we're here, aren't we? We're alive. So let's uh, be grateful. So good to see you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, you're pretty famous these days. Certainly uh, most of my listeners, my tribe, know exactly who you are. But in case this um, arrives in some obscure part of the world, <laughs> somewhere where your books haven't got got to yet, just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you live and a bit about your family maybe. Um, okay, so I live in London, and uh, at the moment we're in, the, the, uh, we're in lockdown, but we're just coming out of it. Um, and I have three kids uh, who are now um, much older than, than they were in, in The Sober Diaries, if, if you've read that. They're, uh, the oldest is 17, um, and then uh, 14 and uh, 12. So, uh, so yeah, so we, we're coming out the other end of the, the whole parenthood thing. Um, and uh, I, am, I used to be in advertising. I was in advertising for about uh, for nearly 20 years. Um, but now um, I'm a full-time writer and um, my writing started with a blog, Mummy Was a Secret Drinker, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And, um, and then I wrote a memoir, The Sober Diaries, um, and now I write fiction. And one of the reasons for moving, for moving from non-fiction to fiction is as the children have got older, writing about my life um, effectively means writing about their lives as well. And any of you with teenagers will know that teenagers really don't like their parents relaying any stories about them certainly not publicly so uh, so it, so now I write fiction and my first novel was called The Authenticity Project and I'm currently editing my second novel so yeah that's me. How exciting yes yes I, I'm sure the children would be, re- be reading your books and saying, Mum, you can't say this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's difficult when, it, when things like sex scenes, you know, I oh. really can't write because no. I always imagine my children reading them. <laughs> so I always have to do sort of imply sex rather than write it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, the authenticity project was great. So we'll have plenty more like that, please. <laughs> Thank you. 
So let's let's look back a bit. So you had your 20 years in advertising and certainly, I mean, hindsight is, is great, isn't it? When I look back on my, my drinking career, it was quite kind of innocuous in my 20s. Even in my 30s, it was very social. And then as I got a bit older, 40s and 50s, it turned more to self-medication then, just kind of staggering home from work, opening a bottle of wine. And I just wondered how yours crept up on you. Uh, yeah, it's very similar, actually. I, I think what generally happened is I started off drinking for sort of social lubrication purposes, you know, so really, um, you know, when I was going out. Um, so as a teenager, I just drank with friends in, in pubs and clubs and what have you. Um, and gradually over time, I think the sorts of occasions that I associated with drink increased and the emotions that I associated with drink increased. So, you know, I started off just drinking to have fun. Um, and then, you know, I start to drink whenever there was any form of celebration. And then you start drinking whenever there's any form of commiseration. And then you start drinking to relax. And you start drinking to rev up. And you start drinking when you're anxious. And you start drinking when you're happy. And, you know, before you know it, you're actually drinking, you know, with any sort of form of emotion that there is and that sort of you know that happened gradually over over a number of years and uh, you know in the the later years you know I got to the point where every day by wine o'clock I was uh, you know sitting down and opening a bottle of wine and pouring a large glass and and it just my tolerance just increased again very gradually over time. So, you know, it started off with one large glass and then it was two large glasses and then it was three large glasses and three large glasses is effectively a, a bottle. Um, so by the end, I was drinking a bottle a day during the week and probably two bottles a day at weekends. Um, and, you know, when I counted it up, which, you know, I tried not to do for a long time, but when I finally did, it was about 10 bottles a week, which is, you know, which is awful. I mean, that's uh, 90 units and the government guidelines are 14. So, yeah, that's how it happened. You are listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you say about the emotions as well, because, you know, like you, I mean, certainly celebration had to, the bubbly had to come out. But in a way, as we know now, alcohol kind of numbs those emotions. So we're almost dampening them down. So it's. Yeah, um, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because, um, you know, what I didn't realize at the time is that when you start drinking to numb, the bad stuff, you know, as you say, you start numbing all the good stuff too. And you end up sort of living your whole life in this sort of slightly numb state, which is, you know, life is short. And it's a great shame to, you know, have the volume turned down like that sort of permanently, which is what I was effectively doing. So let's um, think about the Sober Diaries for a moment. It begins with um, really your, your rock bottom, doesn't it? That, um, that scene with the mug. Yeah. <laughs> so talk <laughs> us through that moment and why you realised things would have to change. Um, yes, yeah, so, so it starts on the day I quit drinking and I, it, was, it, was a, it was a bad day. I woke up um, the day after my birthday party so I had a really bad hangover obviously and um, I went down to my kitchen and my kids were all making loads of racket and um, 
you know, which is sort of par for the course when you've got three children on a, on a Sunday morning. And, um, and I had a terrible headache. And I remember thinking, you know, that the only thing that would make the headache go away is, is hair of the dog, sort of another drink. But it was too early to pour a drink because, you know, I thought, you know, I had this hard and fast rule at the time. I had many hard and fast rules, but the main one was you never, ever drink before midday. You know, no, whether you're on holiday, whether it's the weekend, whatever, never before midday. And it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I just couldn't work out how I was going to get from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock um, with this terrible headache and all this racket and feeling really, you know, just generally awful. And I opened the cupboard and there was a tiny, tiny bit of red wine left in a bottle, which I saw as a sign because I rarely ever left anything in the bottom of a bottle. And I thought, OK, well, I'll just drink that inch of red wine and that might just take the edge off. And I reached into a cupboard, another cupboard and pulled out a mug because I thought, well, then the kids won't know that I'm drinking red wine rather than, than something acceptable like coffee. So uh, I poured the red wine into this mug and drank it. And I did feel a bit better, sort of almost immediately. And then I looked at the mug and it said on it, the world's best mum. You know, I felt so ashamed of myself that I haven't had a drink since then. That was, the, yeah, that was the very last drink I had. And that was six years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> Well done. Thank Have you. Have you tried to stop before then? I think like everyone who's, who's, you know, finally quit, it's not the first time. And, you know, I'd quit for, for weeks at a time and even months at a time. You know, I think my longest stretch was probably about uh, four months uh, before this point. And what had always happened is I get to, you know, uh, a few weeks in and I start thinking, OK, well, I've now reset the the gauge and things will be different and I know better now and I'm never going to get back into that situation again I'm going to drink moderately and sensibly and I'm going to set all these rules and you know and that would work for a week or two or maybe even three weeks but quite quickly I'd be back to you know not just where I was before but even worse so uh so yeah I had tried a number of times but this was this time it stuck yeah, it's, it's classic, this moderation thing, isn't it? Because not only do we think we can moderate, but we actually forget how bad we were, I think, and, and how awful we felt after a few weeks. Yeah. We think, oh, um, I can have I think I think something that helped is that I'd been through exactly the same thought processes with smoking. You know, I was a big smoker in my 20s. And, um, you know, when I got to 30, I thought, right, I can't, you know, I've got to quit drink, uh, smoking because... Uh, you know, I never wanted to, to smoke in, you know, beyond, you know, that, that my teenage years, really. Um, and uh, um, and I did exactly the same thing. You know, I, I quit two or three times. I even quit for a whole year. And then I thought, well, I, I'll just have one at a party. And within, you know, two weeks, I'll be back on a packet a day. And it's exactly the same addiction. So, you know, having been through that with smoking, I sort of came to the conclusion that I'm just not a moderator. <laughs> no, very few people are. And I mean, we've had hundreds of people through our workshops now, and I think maybe two or three of them managed to moderate, but 90, mm. 96% can't. 
Because the thing is, if they're in the, if they're reading the sober diaries or coming to a workshop or thinking about their drinking, then they've probably got an issue with it. Because uh, moderators just moderate. I mean, we're both married to moderators, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and alcohol isn't even on their radar, you know. I mean, because well, I've stopped drinking now, we, we don't have any alcohol in the house. When we go out, maybe even so, we'll have a, a glass of wine, but it, it's not a thing for him. Yeah, no, mine is, my husband's the same. And and actually, I used to be like that way back, you know, way back in my early 20s. You know, I just didn't think about alcohol. If it was there, it was there. And if it wasn't there, it wasn't there. But there's a great saying that AA have, which is you can turn a cucumber into a pickle, but you can't turn a pickle into a cucumber. And, you know, I think when you when you get to a certain point with alcohol or nicotine addiction or any form of addiction, you can never go back to to you know being a moderator you sort of it you your brain chemistry tips over the edge and that's it um and you know I, so i yes i used to be a cucumber but i'm now definitely a pickle <laughs> i'll always be a pickle <laughs> me too <laughs> but we've made peace with being pickles yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way i like to think about it which always makes me feel better about about sort of you know being permanently sober which is you know, I, I have this theory that everybody is born with a lifetime amount of booze that they can they can cope with. And some people, like my husband, manage to string that lifetime supply out over the whole their whole lifetime. And some people like me just drink it all really, really fast and then run out. So it's not actually that we're hard done by. We just took, you know, we just decided to do it all in one go, which yes. was fun at the time, but it's gone now and that's it. <laughs> yes. So now we're settling in for a more sensible phase in our lives. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about the blog. I'm so fascinated by your blog. I was looking at it uh, the other day and it's turned into a fabulous kind of resource now, hasn't it? Are you still blogging regularly these days? No, I, I stopped blogging actually um, because there are just, I just have too many of things course, on. So, course. you know, so I post on social media. I've got the Sober Mummy page on Facebook and um, and I do Twitter and, and Instagram as well. Um, but uh, doing the blog on top of that and trying to get my next book written is just course, just too much. So I, the blog is still there, and I leave mm. it there, and it's free, and anyone who, you know, who wants to access it can. And you know, and there's still a bit of chat goes on on it. But um, but no, and you know, also, I mean, I wrote the blog for about uh, three years, I think, almost every day. And I did get to the point where I thought, okay, I think I might have said everything (laughs) there is to say about alcohol now. So I got to the point where I I felt like I was repeating myself a bit. And I think I was, yeah, I started boring myself. (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's still there and it's definitely worth looking at if there's anyone hearing this that hasn't seen it. So it's called Mummy Was a Secret Drinker, isn't it? Yeah. And Mummy is spelt the English way with a U, not an O. Yes, you can probably still find it on Google if you spell spell it mommy, mommy. But, but it might take a bit longer. So talk me about, uh, tell me about the process, how the blog started, because you, you were there with your perfect mummy mug in full of red wine. And when did you start writing? Um, and, and why? How did it come to you, I'm going to blog this journey? Well, um, actually, I mean, the main reason is because I knew I needed to... I needed some sort of help. I needed to do something, but I was 
really, really ashamed of the mess I'd got myself into. And, you know, I felt I didn't feel I could talk to anyone. I didn't feel I could talk to my husband or my friends or, you know, let alone a professional like a GP or or AA or, you know, anything. Um, but I felt like I had I had to get it all off my chest. But I didn't want to I didn't want to do that in real life. So uh, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll write a diary because that's what I used to do when I was much younger. Um, and and then I thought, well, actually, no, this is the 21st century and people don't write diaries anymore. You know, they write blogs. Um, and and so I'll set up a blog and I didn't know how to do that. And my husband is a techie in our house and I couldn't ask him how to do it. So, you know, I spent a long time Googling things like how do I set up a blog and, you know, and I found, I set up a really simple rudimentary blog. I mean, it, it was over a year before I even posted any pictures, for instance. It was all just text because I didn't know how to do that. Um, and uh, and I called myself Sober Mummy. So I blogged under a pseudonym. And I thought, well, this way I can get everything off my chest without anyone knowing it's me. Um, so... I spent ages trying to make sure that, though you know, nobody could relate it back to to me, um, and uh, and then I just used it as therapy. I just poured my heart out every day, and I didn't publicise it because you know what what most people do with blogs is they link it to their social media and they, you know, they post on social media and they say read my blog, and I I couldn't do that because I didn't want anyone to know it was me. So. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I didn't publicise it at all, but still people found it. And, um, uh, yeah, so, so it, was, it was really a, a therapy thing. And it still is. I still write for therapy. Um, but that's, that's how it all began. And then you got a comment, didn't you? I remember you saying you yeah. were quite shocked. <laughs> yes. I mean, actually, initially, I'd look at my stats and it would say three people, you know, your, your blog has three views. And I think, yay. And then I realised it was all me. <laughs> and then um, I think I left, uh, I started reading other people's blogs um, and I'd leave my my blog address, um, you know, uh, on in the comments and say, you know, if you'd like to read my story, here it is. And people started finding me that way um and uh and yeah so the, I remember about it was about a week in I got my first comment and I was like wow somebody is reading this other than me <laughs> um which is a really weird feeling but I felt protected because it was you know again it was all behind a pseudonym and I never would have had the courage to do it if if it had been more public than that and gradually that community grew quite significantly, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, by the end of the first year, I'd had about two million hits on the blog, which was, you know, which is extraordinary given that, that it, it wasn't publicised. And I think, the, I think the reason is because there were so many people like me who were, you know, Googling late at night, am I an alcoholic and how do I quit drinking? And as the blog became more popular google would lead people in my direction so um so yeah so it just it sort of gradually took off by itself you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab that's www.tribesober.com 
Yeah, oh, amazing story. So, how did the um, how did that blog morph into so the Sober Diaries? Were you approached by a publisher that had found your your blog or something? Um, well, what what started happening is after about a year of blogging, more and more people started saying to me, more and more of my readers started saying, oh, you should turn this into a book because then it would reach more people and um, uh, and that would be really helpful. And um, and so I wrote a blog post and I said, uh, you know, does everybody, anybody think that turning this blog into, you know, a book, a story of the first, my first year going sober would be a good thing to do? And if so, why? And I had loads and loads of comments from people saying, yes, and here's why we think you should do it. And then I approached, used that to approach a number of literary agents. And I said, you know, this, this is what I'd like to do. And I linked through to my blog saying, here's why other people think it would be a good thing to do. Um, so, you know, so the readers of my blog effectively helped me sell it to literary agents and then on to publishers. Um, so, uh, so yes, in the end, I had, uh, I had about... Uh, I had about four, four or five, five publishers who were interested, which was amazing. And, yeah. um, you know, Quitlet was, you know, it was, there were some around, but it was, you know, I, th I think um, the year that I published Sober Diaries uh, was also the year that Catherine Gray published um, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And I think those two books sort of, you know, galvanized that whole um, Quitlet yeah. market, really. Yeah, and of course, all your people that read your blog, they all rushed out to buy your book, which gave it a nice start. And it's been, uh, Sober Diary's been translated into lots of languages, I think, hasn't it? It's a really international book now. Yeah, and, um, you know, I still, every day I get emails or messages from, you know, on social media from people all over the world who've read it. And I think what people say most often is, you know, your story could be my story. Um, you know, we are we are twins separated at birth, <laughs> and yeah. which which is really the reason why I wanted to do it because when you know when I first quit, and and I'm sure you felt the same. You know, you feel so alone. You feel like you are the only person in the world who is is struggling with this substance that everybody else seems to enjoy as a matter of course, and you know, finding out that you're not alone is a really, really powerful thing. Um, and that's what people say to me most frequently is reading your book made me feel less alone. Yeah, so, it's a huge, a huge relief, isn't it? Mm. Because you know, I think your self-esteem is on the floor when you're struggling alone and you keep trying and failing and trying and yeah, failing. And you blame and you think, yourself, you know, you what's think, wrong what's with wrong? You know, why, why am I so weak and pathetic and useless? <laughs> Which, and we look at our not, husbands having you know. their one glass of wine and you think, mm. why can't I do that? Yeah. So tell me about the moment that Sober Diaries came out with your name all over it. You've got a lovely story about the school gates when you were hiding because <laughs> all oh, the other mums suddenly knew about it. Yeah, that well, that, that actually was before before the book came out. When you know, I was just starting to talk to publishers, and um, I threw a I threw a party. So I was still at the, this moment right in the closet, um, and I threw a party, um, and I gave a little speech at the party, and I told 
a story about something my husband had said or something like that. And and then I wrote my a blog post about the party and I told the same story. And um, I got about a day later, I got an email from one of the mums at the school gate who I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that well. And she said, um, uh, she said, hi, but she had she had come to my party um, and she said, hi, Claire, um, uh, you know, thanks so much for the party. And I uh, just had a question I wanted to ask you. She said, <laughs> she said, I, I've been reading this blog for about six months and I, I really love it. And I often read it out loud to my husband and we both laugh about it and talk about how it could so easily be somebody we knew. And I think it's you. And are you sober, mummy? <laughs> and wow. she she just put, you know, read the the blog post and realised that that there was you know, there were too many coincidences and it had to be me. So uh, so that Boston. was a moment at which I thought, <laughs> okay, I might as well come out at this point. So uh, so yeah. So so that was the first moment I I sort of stopped being anonymous and then. When, uh, you know, about three nights before the book was about to be published, I, I did go into a complete panic because my publisher had lined up all this publicity, you know, so I was going to be on national TV and national radio and, and you know, they were serialising the whole thing in the Daily Mail um, and it was all over the place and, you know, and I was going to be doing all of this talking not about something I was proud of but about the worst time of my life and about all my terrible deepest darkest secrets and I thought what am I doing and I had this I had this recurring dream three nights in a row which um, I don't know if you've ever had you know that dream where you're walking down a street and you're naked and everybody is staring at you <laughs> and I had that dream which is how it felt it felt like I was about yeah. to go walking down a street naked um and yeah, it was terrifying. But actually, what I discovered is that when you are, when you make yourself really vulnerable, um, people are generally really kind. You know, um, it's and also when you, when you, when you tell all your darkest secrets yourself, nobody has anything they can level at you because you've already done it. So, you know, then. What are they going to say? They're going to say, you're a terrible lush. It's like, yeah, I just said that. You know, you're a terrible mother. Yeah, I said that too. <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's nothing left they can beat you with, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, in fact, coming out wasn't as bad as you feared. No, it was actually really liberating. And, um, you know, and now I look back and I'm amazed at and angry about how ashamed I felt and how unable I felt to talk about these things, which is why I did the TED Talk. I did a TED Talk called uh, Making Sober Less Shameful because I was just so cross that, that you know, not just me, but so many other people. And the p reason people found my blog is because they were too, again, too ashamed to, to ask for help in real life and they were looking for help on the internet. And, you know, I mean, that's just... You know, it's just a shame. Yeah, so so many people stay trapped, and and I was a little bit like that because I I, I think it, my thought process must have been, well, I got myself into this mess. Now I'm going to get myself out of this mess, and mm -hmm. surely I can manage that. But you know, I couldn't. But I think you know, when we ask people on on the workshop what their biggest fears are about 
getting sober their their fears are what will people say because paradoxically if you say i've stopped drinking everybody goes oh did you have a problem then yeah <laughs> so it's it's yeah, very nobody difficult worries about that with smoking they don't say oh what will people no. say if i stop smoking you know or stop taking cocaine or whatever it might yeah, be um but drinking you know we're made to feel you know i mean the most when people ask me what the most difficult thing was about quitting drinking, my answer is always other people. Yeah, I mean, the social norms are, are just huge. And the combination, of course, as you'll you'll know how it all works, being from advertising, <laughs> the double whammy of all the marketing, you know, implying, especially to us mm-hmm. ladies, that we can't possibly be happy unless we're drinking lots of wine. And then the social norms that treat you like a pariah if you don't drink. Mm-hmm. It really is the toughest part of the whole thing. Yeah, but, you know, think are changing because um for instance you know when when i first quit uh, the only people really talking about not drinking were anonymous bloggers like me but um now you know if you look at the sober community on instagram for instance it's huge and everyone is instagramming under their own names using their you know pictures of their real faces and their real lives and everyone is sort of like out and proud about it and you know, that's a wholly good thing, particularly the under 30s. Um, you know, Absolutely. I think the, for the over 50s, there's still a sort of, you know, I, I think it's all still very entrenched. But the younger generation, you know, think it's cool not to drink. You know, my children yeah, my, think that alcohol yeah. is, is a really sort of you know, dull drug. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my son uh, messaged me the other day and he said, oh, mum, you have to look at TikTok. There's a huge sober community on there. Mm. And I was thinking, what? Isn't TikTok (laughs) for teenagers? So I had a look and and there's some brilliant videos and memes and things, you know, about um, sobriety. It's, uh, it amazed me. I wasn't expecting to see it there at all. So let's take you back to those early years of sobriety. So obviously, you know, you are a writer and and the blogging um, really helped and used it as therapy. Uh, What other things did you do? You are listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Um, I think like everyone, you know, I had a toolkit of things I would try when, you know, when cravings hit and when I, when things got really tough. And there were, you know, a lot of little things that, you know, I almost had a mental list of, you know, do this, do this, do this until you feel better, you know. So it would be things like having a hot bath, um, making a hot chocolate, um, uh, cleaning. I used, I did some frenzied cleaning in the early days just to keep myself busy. And, you know, I'm not normally, a you know, a, a, an avid cleaner. So, you know, I don't think my house has ever been as, as immaculate. Um, and, um, and I think one of the, I did a lot of reading. I read so much about alcohol. I read um, novels about alcohol, like um, uh, Marion Keyes's Rachel's Holiday, one of my favorites. Um, I read memoirs, I read factual stuff, um, you know, I, I sort of, I had a whole stash of books hidden under the bed, <laughs> which which I, I read through constantly. Um, and uh, and I found, I found exercise helpful. Uh, I did a lot of long walks with the dogs, um, uh, listening to audio books to keep myself sort of distracted, um, or podcasts or whatever. Um, and then Actually, one of my top tips for the very, very early days is to change um, change the hours 
your hours of the day. So, um, you know, generally I found that evenings were the hardest because that's when I really associated with drinking. Um, and mornings were the easiest because, you know, I'd, apart from that once, I'd never drunk in the mornings. And and I, so I didn't have any of the drinking associations. And mornings without hangovers, I was discover, discovering are amazing <laughs> revelations. So, so what I started doing is is shifting my hours so that I would go to bed really early and get up really, really early. So I started going to bed at the same time as the, ki- as the kids, really, about sort of, you know, seven or eight o'clock. And I would just read in bed, watch, you know, Netflix, drink hot chocolate, go to sleep really, really early. And then I'd wake up at about 5 a.m. and I'd feel absolutely brilliant. And for me, what that did is it just meant that I'd taken out the hardest part of the day and I'd added on to the easiest part of the day. And for the first few weeks, that's just a little life hack that really you know, helps make things easier, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great tip. Yeah, I always say to people, shake up your routine, you know, mm. so that maybe at six o'clock, rather than opening the wine, you're going for a run, you know, or going to the gym. Yeah, but I, I love that, you know, going to bed. The triggers. Really so, you know, yeah. one, of, one of my big triggers was cooking. You know, whenever I, I cooked in the evening, I would drink while I was cooking. So I would cook the evening meal in the morning and then just heat it up in the evening. So I didn't have that cooking trigger. So, yeah, so it's just trying to shake up your routine so that those those subconscious associations are sort of, you know, are, are changed. Yeah, quite, quite a lot of people in our community, and it certainly happened to me, they're kind of flying through their first three or four months of sobriety and, you know, the pink cloud is still around and they're feeling good. And then they they kind of sink and then they they feel low and rather depressed and they think oh I'm not sure can I carry on with this and and now you know because I I understand more I understand it's all about the dopamine Mm. (laughs) because you're you're not producing that natural dopamine are you your body's got lazy because it's got so used to uh, relying on, on alcohol and I wondered did you go through that that low I call it the void <laughs> yeah I, I call it the wall um, oh. and um, and actually I wrote about it in in the sober diaries because you know like you I was really hit by it you know you think oh look you know I'm doing really well and then bang you know and mm. and it can really throw people off because you know, you it's really demotivating just as you think everything's getting better to, you know, find that it suddenly got worse. And, you know, it was described to me as being a bit like a rubber band. You know, your your brain chemistry has to readjust to a world without being constantly flooded with dopamine. So initially it compensates by, you know, by flooding the brain with, with excess dopamine, which is why you get the happy pink cloud. And then it's like a like an elastic band pinging back. It realizes it's been overcompensating and overcompensates in the opposite direction, which is when you get the wall. Um, so, you know, suddenly you feel really, really miserable. And then it keeps bouncing backwards and forwards, but less dramatically until it finds an equilibrium. So um, and that can take, you know, about two years. But before that freaks you out. It, as I said, it gets better, and, you know, better and better and better over that time. So towards the end, you hardly notice those cycles. Um, but at the beginning, they're quite dramatic, you know, so really happy, utterly miserable, <laughs> really happy again. Um, and over time, they become the cycles get longer and less dramatic. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of people that when they get to that stage, I can tell that they're really thinking about giving up and they're mm. quite serious. So I immediately send them your bunny blog. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it works time after time. So uh, talk to us about the bunny blog. Maybe uh, tell us how it went viral and give us a little summary of, of what it said. Oh, uh, well, this was um, after about seven months of not drinking um you know i was by this stage i was you know quite tapped into the whole community of of you know of sober people and what i saw over and over again is people doing exactly what i'd done in the past which is you know you'd get so far down the road and then you think okay you know sort of I, I, this is really hard and I'm really not enjoying it that much and I've hit a bit of a wall and I'm going to go back you know start drinking again and and what I realized having got to this seven month point is that when you do that you're doing that hard bit over and over and over again and you're never giving it long enough to get to the good bit and the good bit really takes about it takes about a hundred days to get from you know, from rock bottom to a point where, you know, you really can see what life might be like without alcohol. And if you keep just doing the the first sort of, you know, first month, the, the dry January, the sort of sober October, you're doing, you know, the really hard bits and you're not getting to the really good bits. So, you know, so it's a bit miserable. So I wrote a blog post called The Obstacle Course. And I talked about how I used an analogy of a field and I said, you know, really what it feels like is, you know, you're standing in this field which used to be really lovely. You know, there used to be lots of bunnies hopping around, lots of flowers, sunshine, you know, sort of everything was really beautiful and gloriously technicolor. And gradually over time, um, the sun came out less, it started raining more, it got colder and colder, the bunnies started to disappear. And it happened so gradually that you hardly realized it happened. And then suddenly you look around and you think, this place is really miserable and I don't want to be here anymore. And somebody says to you, look, what are you doing here? You know, there's a much, much better field to live in. And, you know, it's not that far away. It's over there. And, you know, you just need to get through this little obstacle course and then you'll find it and everything will be just like it used to be, you know in the old days, um, uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful sunshine and bunnies and what have you. So you think, okay, you know, I'm going to give it a go. And you throw yourself at the obstacle course. And there are, you know, there are big walls and there are uh, leeches and there are tunnels and it's really hard work and it's exhausting. And you get you know, you've been doing this for, for several days or weeks trying to get through this obstacle course and you're exhausted and you think, I'm not sure I believe that the field is there. And I don't think, I don't know how long it, it how far away it is and I'm not sure I can make it. And, you know, whilst my old field was pretty awful, this obstacle course is even worse. So you go back to your field and initially you think, oh, thank God I'm back here. And, but very, very quickly, all the reasons you hated it come back and you're, you know, again, you're miserable and it's raining and it's even worse than it was before. There's even sort of, you know, fewer flowers and it's just really uncomfortable. So you go again at the obstacle course and the same thing happens. You know, you do the first few obstacles and then go back to the beginning again. 
And what happens every time you do this, you exhaust yourself more and you feel more and more miserable and you feel less and less convinced that it's possible. Um, and what I said is it is possible. It takes about 100 days to get there, but the obstacles get easier and you just have to keep going because if you go back to the beginning, you're doing the hard bits of the obstacle course over and over again. You just have to keep going until you get to the other end. And at the other end is the field of bunnies with the sun shining and all the flowers. And there are lots of people waiting for you. And it will take you about 100 days to get there. But if you keep going, you will get there. And uh, that was the obstacle course sort of post in effect. Um, and I posted that and that's been shared. I haven't checked the stats recently, but it's been shared thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And I've also printed it in the Sober Diaries. Um, and I, I think because because so many people have been through that experience, the same one that I had and, and that you had, you know, that sort of, you know, that you keep throwing yourself at it. And every time you get more <laughs> exhausted and more disillusioned and you hate yourself more. Um, and uh, and what you really need is just the absolute conviction that there is a field at the other end and that it is possible to get there and that loads of people have done that journey before you. And once you have that conviction, it makes it all so much easier. Oh, well, well, well done for writing that, Claire. It's, it's helped so many people. And I told you it's become a, almost a bit of a lang language in our community and we're, we're all on WhatsApp all the time. And when somebody reaches a landmark, you know, they go, oh, 100 days today. Everyone sends them little bunnies, you know, little <laughs> oh, emojis. So, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for new people, they often say, what are all these bunnies about? <laughs> then I send them the blog and they get it. So, uh, so thank I you. I actually you, posted you. the blog on the Sober Mummy Facebook page on Easter Day because I thought, you oh, know, Nice. buddies easter day <laughs> so. yeah yeah um yeah i think we both uh, this applied to both of us but i i was in denial about my drinking for years because i uh, i just wasn't really prepared to face it because i i was always determined to drink never to drink so much that i would have to stop and i mm. thought i would be able to do that but you know obviously i wasn't and I just wonder for people listening to this uh, thinking, oh, I wonder if I've got a problem or do I need to, to worry about this? What, what do you see as the warning signs? Well, you know what? I mean, I was exactly the same as you, Janet. You know, I, I tried for a very long time to convince myself that I didn't have a problem. And, you know, the number of times I found myself late at night Googling, am I an alcoholic? Um, and And then managing to convince myself by answering the little questionnaires that would always pop up that I wasn't really an alcoholic because I didn't do things like drink in the morning and have the shakes or, you know, um, I didn't have major blackouts. You know, I found any reason I could to cling on to to think this isn't me. And actually what I realise now is I was asking the wrong question. You know, the question isn't am I an alcoholic? That's just a red herring. You know, the terminology is a red herring. The question you should be asking is, is alcohol messing up my life? And if I'd asked that question, I would have realised I should quit a lot earlier, I think. Um, and the main, for me, I think everyone has the trigger that makes them think this really is messing up my life. But for me, one of the big ones is how much headspace drink was taking up and I got to the point where I realized that 
I was constantly thinking about drinking. Um, I was thinking about drinking while I was drinking, but I was thinking about drinking even when I wasn't drinking. I was thinking about when am I going to drink next and where am I going to buy it from and how much am I going to buy and and what rules am I going to set myself and um, you know how can I justify doing this and how you know and it was going round and round and round my head all the time and I called that voice the wine witch. Um, and and I think if anyone listening to this who understands instinctively what the wine witch is, that's when you have a problem. People who don't have a problem haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, the what? I think you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the addictive voice that any addict to anything has you know if you're addicted to sugar for instance you know you'll have the sugar monster that goes oh go on just another square of chocolate you know I mean same with gambling same with uh shopping you know I mean any anyone who is addicted to anything has that voice in their head um it's also uh people I um I've come across with who have major eating disorders say they have exactly the same voice um so, yeah, so the addict voice, the voice in your head, that's the sign for me, the big sign that there's a problem. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation. Yeah. Another warning sign that you used to have was worrying uh, about the cashier in the supermarket. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember well, that one? That's one of that's one of the things my voice used to say is, "Oh, you can't go to that shop because you went there yesterday and the cashier will notice and they will judge you." And actually, when I started blogging, it was one of my favourite moments. Um, is, is again, it was very in the very early days when I, there weren't that many people reading the blog, um, or I didn't know there were that many people reading the blog, and. I wrote this blog post about supermarket cashiers and I told that story about how, you know, I always used to worry about supermarket cashiers and how freeing it was being able to go to the shops and not worry about being judged. <laughs> and and I got all these comments of people saying, yes, me too. I did exactly the same. And it's so wonderful when you realise you're not the only one who's done these bizarre things. But the thing that really made me laugh is that somebody um, left a message saying, um, actually, I am a supermarket cashier and actually I do judge you. <laughs> I love that <laughs> I think part of the reason why she did judge people is because she had a problem with alcohol herself. So she did notice, yeah. well, you know, I, it's funny now when I first quit drinking, I would notice what other people were drinking because it was still always on my mind and now I just don't notice you know I go to a party and I just don't notice what people are drinking how much they're drinking who's drinking and who isn't it just it doesn't you know doesn't feature on my radar anymore yeah and what what a relief that is and especially mm. as you say that it takes up so m much mental space worrying about it and now, yeah. now you can focus on on your writing and much more interesting things than yeah, which supermarket people, can I exactly, go to exactly and people do amazing things when they quit drinking because yeah. they suddenly have so much more 
as it's not just you know people expect to have a bit more physical time because you know you uh, you realize that yeah you're going to have less time drunk less time hung over so you're going to have more physical hours in the day but what people don't take into account is the the effect of having more mental time as well and and that is the real transformation i think and people do incredible things with all that mental time they suddenly accumulate yeah, yeah, we we see that over and over in our community. You know, we've got people um, painting wonderful pictures, mm. and taking up horse riding, and and I'm always quoting you actually as a as a wonderful example because uh, you always wanted to write, didn't mm. you, as a child? I think, and once you got sober, you suddenly had the time and the creativity to do that because I I think drinking kind of dulls your mind, and yeah. I, I bet you couldn't have written such good books no, <laughs> even if no, you had. And I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it because I didn't have any self-respect or, you know, and I was I was really I would spend a lot of time being very anxious and afraid. And uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't have had the nerve to even give it a go, I don't think. But what's interesting about that is that um, so often people, when they quit drinking, talk about coming full circle and you often end up almost back at uh, much more like you used to be as a teenager before sort of, you know, alcohol took hold. So, you know, often people say, you know, I used to be as a teenager, I was really creative, I was really confident, I was, you know, really energetic. And they discover, rediscover all those things as they, they quit drinking. And they also rediscover their childhood passions. So often when people get sober, I ask them, you know, what did you really love doing when you were a child? You know, what was your thing? You know, was it drawing? Was it um, uh, sport? Was it um, music? You know, what, what really, what did you love doing? And often those are the things that people rediscover when they quit drinking. And often yeah. they turn those passions into a whole new career. Um, so, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, we have to discover our natural highs, don't we? And all those sort of things, they will get the dopamine going because mm. there are natural passions and, it, and it's a much deeper, more satisfying high than, uh, than a chemical one. Now, I've got a question. I've got a lot of questions, actually, from our community for you, but I'm not going to go through them all. We'll find another way that you can answer them. But uh, just, just one here from Miranda in Scotland. I thought you'd like to answer her. She's not that far from you. Hi, Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> now, she says that um, she's heard that 60% of Brits have no idea what the low-risk alcohol limits are. And those that do know, they don't take them seriously at all. And she's just saying, how can we get more information into the public domain? You know, how can we start educating people about just how harmful alcohol is? Oh. Like we used to with cigarettes. Didn't yeah. We, we it, finally got that message out. It's it's so hard and um, it, it does, it will take a very long time, exactly like cigarettes. You know, for years, um, you know, people were writing about how, cigarettes, if you had a terrible cough, cigarettes were the way to help cure it, which is, you know, extraordinary when you think about it now. Um, and I think the, it's funny, because I did a lot of research into uh, what was, uh, you know, what was generally talked about in the press as, as, as far as things like the cancer risk um, of smoking and uh, drinking, rather, um, and all that sort of thing. And the truth is, 
that, you know, there have been a load of studies done about what's safe and what isn't safe. And, you know, and those studies are generally all reported on in the national press. The problem is that if you're an addict, you don't pay any attention in the same way that when I was a smoker, you know, I knew that smoking caused lung cancer. It said it on the packet, you know, it said, you know, if you smoke, you may die. You know, it said things like one in two people who smoke die of smoking. Um, And you just go la 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 la. And the problem is that that is what the whole that's what the whole population is doing they're ignoring it and the you know some of the biggest drinkers in the country are the journalists (laughs) so there's no surprise that when these studies come out they're reported but you know sort of then dropped whereas you know the minute there's a study that says drinking red wine helps you live longer you know it's all over the tabloids um, because that's a story they know people want to hear so I think the Part of the issue, if not the main issue, isn't what we say to people, it's what people want to hear. And people just don't want to hear that their favourite drug is going to kill them um, or ruin their life in any way, shape or form. They want to they want to believe that it's, you know, and I, I remember writing in the Sober Diaries that, you know, I was constantly reading those um, articles that sort of convinced me that the more red wine I drank, the more likely I was to live to 105 and sort of, you know, and, and it was all part of a sort of Mediterranean lifestyle and it was going to be terribly good for me. Um, and I ignored everything that said, you know, actually it may give you breast cancer, which it did. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think that's a problem. I think until people are ready to hear it, nobody is going to be talking about it enough yeah yeah we're all looking for confirmation bias they call mm, it, don't they? yeah exactly but uh, yeah i was thinking the other day about the pandemic you know how uh, what i mean it's obviously tragic and there's millions of people died from it but we had the pandemic and the whole world closed down basically didn't it and changed mm-hmm. dramatically and we had constant briefings from the top governments of the world but um apparently uh, according to the world health organization anyway 3 million people every year die from alcohol related causes mm. and nothing changes just more money pumped into marketing yeah <laughs> oh. if alcohol came in onto the market now it would never be legal it's yeah. purely a historical issue um and uh and yeah there there's just there are too many people invested in you know spinning the lies about it not just the people that make it but the people that drink it you know and I was one of those for a long time in fact I did advertising for a wine brand you know which now I feel terrible about and it was all about how you know aimed at women you know and um all about how sophisticated and sociable and you know relaxing uh it would be so it was all your fault yeah. <laughs> we got into this mess yeah i blame myself <laughs> this is schadenfreude <laughs> so let's let's go back to your writing um so once the sober diaries was published the good news kept coming in didn't it it's been translated into uh, many languages and then you had a global publishing deal to write fiction books yeah so um so i published the sober diaries oh about three years ago now and then a year ago I published my first novel which is uh yeah the authenticity project and that's um 
coming out in 31 languages, which is amazing. Um, and I still can't quite get my head. I keep seeing pictures on Instagram of my book in various countries in various different languages, and it always blows my mind. And, and it's uh, on some New York bestseller list. Yeah, so it? it's a, it's it, a yeah. New York Times bestseller, um, which... Uh, yeah, and um, yes, it's. I, I still can't quite wrap my head around it, to be honest, because if well, you... you're such a good writer, Claire. Apart from the the sober diaries, but uh, the audacity. Um, keep calling it the audacity project, the authenticity <laughs> project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just I read it when it came out. Got through it in a day, I think. And uh, but the characters have really stayed with me. I could. Um, you know, tell oh, you the characters. And well, there is, of course, there's an addict in it, obviously. Of course, um, of so, course. Uh, With so a, one of the what's his name? Hazard. Hazard. Yeah, one of the characters is called Hazard, and he is a cocaine and alcohol addict um, who quits um, his cocaine and, and booze at the beginning of, of the book, and we see him struggling with that, and his journey is... is very much like mine, really. So, yeah, they say write what you know. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, no, you can you can sense that. No, it's it's a lovely book. So tell us about the next one. Oh, How long the, are you going to make us wait for this? Uh, it's not going to come out till next year, so it'll come out twenty twenty two. I don't know exactly when yet. Um, and at the moment, I'm at the editing stage. So uh, so it's sort of I've written the first draft and I'm now rewriting it. Um, and it's it's not a direct follow-on from the first one. So if you've read the Authenticity Project, it does have a couple of cameo appearances from the characters oh, that you good. might remember. So you might recognise those if you have read the first book, but it's it's not a, a direct sequel. Um, but um, it's a very similar style. So you know it's told from the perspective of five different people and. Um, and they all meet on a train. So I'm fascinated by commuters, you know, people who take yeah. the same train or bus to work every day and they see the same people over and over again and they make all sorts of assumptions about them, but they never talk because actually all over the world there is a sort of unwritten rule of, of commuting that you don't talk to other people, you keep yourself very much to yourself. And in this instance, something happens right at the beginning of the book that uh, an instant which gets them all talking and really the whole story is about what happens next. So what happens when you start talking to strangers on the train? Can't wait. <laughs> I'm well done for writing when you were homeschooling as well. <laughs> yeah, that was a children. bit of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> we, we could talk all day, but we better wrap this up a little bit now. Let's just go back to the alcohol. So if someone's listening that would like to quit drinking, but they just don't know where to start, they just feel overwhelmed by it all, as we both did some years ago. A any advice? Where, where should they start? Oh, well, I, th I think there, there are three things um, uh, I think you need to do right at the beginning. The first is write it down. Because you mentioned this earlier, Janet, you said you know, it's so easy to forget how bad it was. Um, and, you know, it's like when you're in the middle of that obstacle course, you forget how bad that original field felt. You know, you convince yourself it was OK, really. Um, so write it down, write down all the reasons why you want to quit and all the ways it makes you feel. And, 
you know, uh, just it doesn't have to be a blog. It can be on a piece of paper. It can be on a Facebook post. It can be wherever you want. Just write it down. Make sure you have a record because that's really helpful later on if you want to go back and see how far you've come or convince yourself you're doing the right thing. Um, the second thing I would suggest doing is finding a tribe of some sort. And they say that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I'm sure the reason why me quitting this time worked when it hadn't before is because I had a tribe of other people doing the same thing with me. And that's why um, um, AA has been so successful over the decades um, is because it's about finding a tribe. So um, a tribe like Janet's tribe um, is perfect. Um, you know, it can be virtual, it can be in real life, uh, however you want, but find other people doing the same thing because then you'll help each other. Um, and then the final thing is try and be excited rather than scared yeah. um, because it's so easy to focus on all the things you think you're losing um, and instead try and focus on all the things you're gaining. Um, and what I find really helpful is doing a sort of vision board. So just get pictures, words, um, emotions, things you want your life, you know, picture how you want your life to look in a year's time and stick it on the fridge or stick it right by your bed so you see it first thing in the morning and just have that in mind the whole time because the truth is you're not losing anything, you're gaining so much and it is hard, it's really hard and that's why you need to be excited at the beginning of that journey because if you're not you'll never make it to the end of the 100 days um and you'll quit part way through the the obstacle course yeah yeah i don't know if you remember my colleague lucy from uh, the london workshop yes i do she very has, well <laughs> a lovely thing she says is um because people talk about oh i've got this problem you know especially at the beginning and, and she always says um you don't have a problem, love. You've got an opportunity here. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a great way yeah. of uh, reframing it. Yeah, You've got it an is. opportunity to create a new type of life. So very last question, I promise. Um, top three benefits of sobriety. For me, the very top one is peace. And what I mean by that is the absence of that voice in your head that we talked about earlier. So not having to deal with the wine witch anymore. Um, and, you know... I don't think I ever in the old days had moments where my mind was still and now I do. And that is, you know, that is immeasurable um, what a difference that makes. So that would be my first thing. Um, my second thing would be courage. Um, and again, I mentioned how when I was drinking, I felt anxious a lot of the time and fearful. And whenever I was nervous about something, I would just have a drink. And my life got smaller and smaller and smaller and I was less able or willing to take any form of risk at all. And um, since I quit drinking, I've been so much more courageous and fearless and I've done things that, you know, like publishing a book that I never would have done if I was still drinking. So courage is my number two. And then my number three is self-respect. Um, because I think almost everyone I've talked to who's been addicted to alcohol gets to the point where they hate themselves, um, or at least they don't like themselves very much. And that's a really miserable way to live. Um, and particularly when you're constantly waking up at three o'clock in the morning, berating yourself for being such a terrible person. And, 
you know, we spend a lot of time with ourselves. So if you hate the person you're spending all this time with, then, you know, it's, as I said, it's a miserable way to live. So self-respect would be my number three. So peace, courage, self-respect. Beautiful. That's a wonderful uh, way to end, I think, Claire. Thank you. So there you heard a lovely mix of inspiration and practical tips from the fabulous Claire Pooley. Let me pick out a few highlights for you. Like many of us, Claire started drinking socially and over the years it evolved to drinking to manage her emotions. Whether she was celebrating or commiserating, the wine would come out. Eventually she was drinking every day. One glass at the end of the day became two, which became a bottle with a bit more at the weekend. She was horrified to realise that she was putting away 90 units a week when the low-risk guidelines are just 14. One of Claire's coping strategies was to write. She started an anonymous blog called mummywasasecretdrinker.com and blogged every day for three years. She used her blog as therapy and poured her heart out into it every day. She gained a huge following on this blog, 2 million hits by the end of year one. Claire believes that we all feel alone in our problem with alcohol and that's why her blog resonated with so many people. She discovered that her honesty and vulnerability attracted many readers. Looking back, she feels angry that we feel so much shame around our drinking and that's why she did a TED Talk on that very subject. I'll put the link in the show notes. Claire shared some of her strategies with us. They included writing, hot baths, hot chocolate, cleaning, reading books about alcohol, exercise, audio books and podcasts. But she came up with this really clever tip. I think it's great and I wish that I'd known about this when I was um, in my early days of sobriety. What she did was she changed the hours of the day around. She completely shook out her routine. Because she found mornings easy and evenings hard, she decided that she'd go to bed really early, about 7 o'clock when the children went to bed. And then from her bed she'd watch a movie or read some books and slept really early. And then she'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning feeling fantastic. Made it so much easier during those first difficult months because she was just cutting out those dangerous hours in the evening when she usually used to drink. Another great tip from Claire was about cooking. Now, many people like to sip on the wine while they're preparing the evening meal, and Claire was one of those people. So she decided that she would cook in the morning and then heat it up in the evening, because she would certainly never feel like drinking in the morning when she was preparing that. So again, I think that's a fabulous tip. Thank you, Claire. Like many of us, she had a major low in early sobriety. She calls this the wall and believes it's down to your brain chemistry, trying to adjust. If you accept that you're going to have ups and downs, then it really helps. And the thing to remember is that these highs and lows actually get less severe as time goes on. Of course, that led us to talk about her bunny blog, which went viral. The obstacle course, it's called. I'll put the link in the show notes. This blog emphasises that if we stop and start with our drinking, all we're doing is the hardest bit over and over again. So the important thing to remember is just push through, keep going however hard it gets. The magic is on the other side of the wall, as she calls it. 
I asked her for some advice for newbies, people just starting out on this journey. She advised that you write down how bad it was so you don't forget. I know exactly what she means, because a few months into your alcohol-free life, you start having dangerous thoughts like, oh, maybe I wasn't that bad after all, or maybe I could just manage the odd glass of wine. And of course, write down your why list. Why are you doing this? I ask people that when we begin our workshops and those reasons are always big reasons. You know, it's connected with their family or their jobs or their health. You know, it's not small things that make people realise they've got to stop drinking. And of course, she said, find your tribe. It's impossible to do this alone. So please go to tribesober.com and click on join our tribe and you'll see what we can offer. If you'd like to chat to me about the support that we offer and whether it would be of help to you, then please book a discovery call. Just go to tribesober.com and look at the big yellow telephone on the homepage. Just click there and make an appointment in the calendar. My final questions to Claire were about the benefits of sobriety. What were her personal top three benefits? Straight away she answered me, peace courage and self-respect. What fantastic reasons to get sober. So thank you, Claire. Lots of inspiration there. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.